It's nice to see many familiar faces. Are you the same as you were last year? No? Yes. One of my students said yes. How frustrating. <laughs> when I came back from a uh, overlong stay, in, a sojourn in the East of about six or seven years, my younger brother said, Jeffrey, you're still yourself, only more so. <laughs> that bugged me at first, being an ambitious overachiever, but in the years, that's m m the wisdom, even the praise in that has matured. I said, yeah, myself, even more so. Even more so. What are we trying to become anyway? And who do we think we are? We're not who we think we are. What kind of so many stories that we tell ourselves? Who we are, what we're doing, what the meaning of it all is. You know why we come here and what we get and how we. If we can only keep sitting for another half hour, then I'll feel better. Afterwards. That's a story. Just a story. So, that reminds me. One of my teachers, Punjaji in India, one of my friends, th there's this uh, master in India named Punjaji. And one of my friends, he speaks English, he's an old man, an Indian master, one, and saying, one of my friends came and stuck a video camera in his face and, and a microphone and said, oh, master, many of, there are many seekers of truth and friends and, and Sangha members in the West and in America. They're seeking for truth. They're, they want to know what they should do and should they come to see you and where should they go to find enlightenment and freedom. Do you have any advice for them? And he sticks the microphone there in the master's face and the master says, stay home. <laughs> I think that's kind of what my brother was saying unconsciously, being a guru to me. Be ourselves, and even more so. Actually, what Punjaji said was not exactly stay home. He said, stay wherever you are. Isn't that the lion's roar of the Dharma, of truth, to be as is, to be who you are? Not who you think you are, which may hopefully probably have some overlap with who you are, <laughs> you never know. You know, old T.S. Eliot, old, um, it doesn't matter, they're all the same. <laughs> oh, that's what I <laughs> James Joyce, he said, Mr. What's his name? I forgot. Mr. What's his name lived at a short distance from his body. Oh, yeah. yeah. Isn't that like us? So, to be who we are, it might sound cheap, easy, superficial, like newage, <laughs> but, 
I'm sorry, I forgot where I am. Uh, but, <laughs> but it's extremely profound. That's why many masters have said, kill the Buddha. You know, if you meet the Buddha, that's not the real Buddha. If the Buddha's in your road, push him aside, him or her. That's not the real Buddha. That's uh, Buddha dressed up in drag Buddha, Halloween Buddha. Other masters have said, don't put a Buddha's head on top of your head. You become a monster. You know, one head is enough. So, what are we trying to become? Why are we so dissatisfied with ourselves? Do we even know ourselves? Or we're we just replaying some old tapes and listening to old voices? You know, we're never good enough. Or, what? Only 99 on the math test? <laughs> or whatever. Never enough. Never good enough. Never enough. Never enough love. Or uh, just the other side of it, you know, too much. Too much work, too much speed, too much noise, too much environmental pollution. Too much to do. Where is the balance point in all this? All these doings. Running on the gerbil cage. We think we're climbing a ladder to somewhere. It's a gerbil cage. The treadmill of conditioning, of karmic conditioning, psychological conditioning, the momentum of conditioning driving us forward, staggering forward, trying to keep up with our own momentum. <sighs> no wonder why we're so exhausted, so burnt out. So, the Dharma message, if there is such a thing as a one particular Dharma message, the Dharma message has a lot to do with seeing through that kind of illusion. Of course we need to do inner work, work on ourselves, transform, purify, wake up, wake up from the dream, from the sleepwalking from the dream of illusion, of separateness, and so on, of course. But that's just one side. Like a snake untangling itself. It was a snake before it untangled, also. If you know what a snake is, we are ourselves. We are fine. We are at home. Whether or not we know it or not. So in the Dzogchen teachings, I've been asked to speak tonight about Dzogchen, the Tibetan teachings, the great perfection, the innate great perfection teachings, the non-dual teachings of the diamond vehicle, the Vajrayana, the tantric way, the way of the great perfection of all things. In the Dzogchen great perfection teachings, it says, we are all Buddhas. We only have to awaken to that. We only have to realize and recognize who and what we are. Just like water and ice of one single nature in different momentary states. But one single nature, so-called Buddha nature, or great perfection, or living 
spirit, pure spirit, whatever you want to call it, pure being. Words fail. Whatever we call it, still, there it is. We are all endowed, filled with it. We are it. It's not just, as it says, as I often hear, parroted by all the brilliant Dharma teachers of the world, and we parrot what they parrot, which they parrot from others. <laughs> all beings have Buddha nature. It's not so dualistic. All beings are Buddha nature. Not even Buddha. Forget Buddha. Buddha's an intruder. <laughs> all are living spirit, are light. Shadows are also light. Shadows are nothing but light. To call it Buddha nature is to, again, put it afar. In India, that's why the Master said, stay home. To call it Buddha nature sounds oriental, doesn't it? Sounds foreign. We have to import it from Japan or somewhere. But anyway, it's not going to fit. It's going to be too small and pinch our toes. Or the you know, Japanese car is too small for some of us. <laughs> don't we need, don't these times call for a homegrown, natural, organic, made in America Buddha nature? <laughs> Right on, right. We say in Tibetan, Imho, far out. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, yes, affirmation. Not just, oh, suffering, dukkha, misery. <laughs> How long? Three months, three years, three lifetimes of retreat, and still the same, even more so. <laughs> trudging to enlightenment, slogging our way through the muddy trenches, through the barbed wire, into it's like the machine gun's nest of our thoughts and, and, and impulses. That's just one way of looking at it. That's one way of looking at it. What about from the other side? You know, turn off the projector for a moment and take a commercial break. Go outside. Oh, that, that was a great movie. The Longest Day, or whatever it's called. <laughs> no bullets, no machine guns, no mud, no barbed wire. Sunny day in California. Magnolia trees blooming. <sighs> what about that? And then we can turn off the projector, wake up from that dream to, you know, ad infinitum. When I first met my own uh, root guru, Kala Rinpoche, in Darjeeling in 1972, and some other teachers in Burma. And 
I was at Rinpoche's monastery in Darjeeling. And he said to me, what kind of meditation are you doing? And I said, Vipassana or something. He said, what's that? And I told him that I was observing the sensations in my body. I was watching my breath and so on. At this time, I didn't know much about masters. I was just meditating and doing the technique and kind of learning in that way. And I thought I was talking to a Tibetan guy, <laughs> old man, monk, Kala Rinpoche. And he said to me, what are you going to meditate on when you stop breathing? <laughs> and I thought, oh, who am I speaking to? It took me a long time. It was like what my brother said. It took me some time to process that, maybe 20 years or 30 years. I said, oh, maybe there is something more to this awareness, this awakeness business, this pure living spirit, than just the body, than just the mind and the thoughts and the states of mind, any something more than just awareness of the breath. Maybe there is something more, but what is it? How do we express it? What does meditate mean, even if you're not breathing, you know, if you're so-called dead? What is, what is aware? What, is, what would be meditating at that time? So that's the challenge I'm throwing out tonight. Then I'm going to open this up to questions. We all have different meditation practices or some overlapping same meditation practices, but who or what is meditating? Who or what is experiencing? Whatever object we're meditating on, the breath, mindfulness of breathing, sensations, mindfulness of sensations, or mindfulness of mind, of thoughts, or visualization, or mantra, or <clears throat> chakras, koans, conundrums, whatever, Buddha forms, God's light, Whatever movie we're watching, whatever weather we're experiencing, emotional weather, who or what is experiencing that? What story are we telling ourselves about that? What do we think we're going to get out of it? How are we measuring it? Is it about duration? How many days, how many hours, how many minutes? You know, we're not getting paid by the minute to meditate. We're not getting paid by the hour or the year to live spiritual life. It has its own rewards, yes, but they're not so easily figured out on the actuarial tables. I'm not sure that the path of awakening is like an engineering project, like an actuarial curve, you know, like a compounded interest kind of thing. I think it's more poetic than that. It's more creative. It's more mysterious. It's more circular. It's more inconceivable, isn't it? Check your own experience. One of my friends, Fred von Allman, who's a wonderful Vipassana teacher and bodhisattva in Switzerland, 
he always says, it's one of his favorite little stories, he always says, he, always, he never has any experiences while meditating. It always happens while he's walking around or something. So why is that? It's like by surprise. It comes from the other side of the brain, not the rational side. It's not an, edu- an engineering project. Ripeness is all, as somebody Shakespeare said. Ripeness. We know the fruits fall in the autumn, but we don't know what day. So many Zen masters have said they're wise acres. They always make these kind of jokes. Said meditation. Is how how to put this. Enlightenment or enlightenment experience, awakening experience is like an accident. You can't legislate it. You can't meditate it. You can't fabricate it. But spiritual practice makes us more accident prone. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's all all I want to say tonight. I could talk, you know, about this forever and make jokes. I'd like to hear from you. Then you can ask me what to talk about or even tell me where it's at. That would be even better. You know, I asked a bunch of questions tonight. I know I'm supposed to sit up here and be the answer man, but I think it's more healthy to ask questions, to look, inquire, to investigate. You know, it says in the quest in the Buddha Sutra, questions of King Melinda, one of the ancient original scriptures of Buddhism. The king of Bactria in Afghanistan said to the great bhikkhu of India, Nagasena, he said, "Oh, master, what is the main?" factor of enlightenment. I'm going to translate that factor of enlightenment as what is the greatest agent of transformation? In Buddhist scriptures, there's seven factors of enlightenment, seven factors conducive to enlightenment, seven agents of transformation. Like mindfulness, balance, or relaxation, um, a few others, I forget what they are. Concentration, whatever, getting bored. No. <laughs> Interest, I don't know. It doesn't matter. And, and Bhikkhu Nagasena said the main factor of enlightenment, he didn't say meditation, you know. He said his investigation. You think about that. So if you're, trying, if you're sitting here trying not to think when you meditate, or to flatline your brain, or to get through the hour then I suggest you come during the break and just hear the, the show at, at 8 o'clock. Because better do something else from 7 to 8 than flatline your brain and try to, you know, white out or use life out correction fluid to white out everything. But... You know, the, the truth is for everyone. The Dharma belongs to everyone. No one has a corner on the market of truth. Not Buddhists, not teachers, not spiritual people. The light is shining in everyone and in everything, every moment. I challenge you to find it wherever you are. Not just in Mecca or in the Himalayas or Mount Shasta or somewhere wherever one is. 
And every day we might notice or, or investigate. How is it being preached right now, the Dharma? The sound of the rain, the smell of the magnolia trees and plum blossoms opening, or from that matter, the smell of the dog shit on the corner. The rich, pungent moment of, you know, of experience. How is the Dharma, the truth manifesting right now? And what's, if anything, is keeping me from it? That's a question for today, to bring the Dharma out. We always talk about bringing the Dharma into our daily life. How about bringing it out of our daily life? Finding it there, bringing it out, harvesting it there. Dharma belongs to everybody. Help yourself. Any questions or anything? Please feel free. Yes? Yes and no. I'd be happy to, but it's a little theoretical for most people. You know, Buddhism has many schools, Tibetan Buddhism has four schools, and in the four schools there are the different paths and there are different practices. So Dzogchen and Mahamudra is considered the consummate or highest practice of Tibetan Buddhism, the non-dual practice, the luminous heart of the Dharma in which all paths converge. The naked, the awareness component of practice, not the forms. Okay, is that enough? <laughs> it's all there in what I said. Hmm? I said not really, but that's okay. Okay. You know, Nyingma, Shmingma. <laughs> I'd rather talk about the main transformation agents. Uh huh. Right. Yes. Right. It's definitely not there. <laughs> no, it's there. It must be there too. But let's find it wherever it is, wherever we are. Let's not theorize too much about a word like non-duality, but. In our own experience, when we feel incomplete or separate, we might question or, you know, oh, separate from what? Well, incomplete, what am I missing? You know, look into those, see through those illusions. That's what non-dual points to. Not two, not separate, not incomplete. We'll give you a gong for that. Thank you. <laughs> yes, what I want to know, and I challenge you, all you old Dharma dogs and Dharma demons out there that have been haunting the meditation halls for the last few years and decades, is why do we get all the merit badges and the war medals for getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning through all these retreats 
and sessions and everything, you know, as if we're serving all beings and getting all the good karma. And the the mothers who get up at 2 o'clock every night for 5 or 10 years to burp the babies, the colicky babies that puke on their heads (laughs) while they're doing it to repay them, they don't get the merit badges, they don't get interviewed in the Buddhist magazines, and they don't go on ABC News about American Buddhism. (laughs) So that's an example of bringing forth the Dharma in your life. Now, if we become more conscious of it, then we might even be able to do it more. It's not just that everything we do is dharma. That is true, but it's too soon to say that. So, of course, it comes out in our genuine life. That is expression of Buddha nature, the love and the connectedness you feel and the commitment and all that. But you might also look into, what's the difference between that practice with your daughter, did you say? And the relations with other people that are not your daughter. Where does the relation with the daughter, the beautiful, loving, selfless, unselfish relationship with your daughter and, and the selfish relations with, you know, whatever, your ex-husband or your boss or whoever, begin? See, that's where the duality creeps in quickly, doesn't it? Right, of course. (laughs) So we just have to know that. We don't have to judge it. We don't have to judge ourselves. That's just how it works. That ability to extend to others uh, reminds me of a practice that a teacher showed me many years ago in New York. I may have been out of Nyingma or something, but how to see all beings as your mother. All, every being that you run into has been at one point in time or will be at some point in time your mother, which is really just a trick to get you to open up, to open up that heart. Or you are closed down. Right. <laughs> there may be some cultural differences. <laughs> well, she's from Long Island. You know? <laughs> My mother these days she came to my 45th birthday party and she always introduces herself as Mama Surya Das. Wow. <laughs> so she's, she got with the program, but it took a while. But, <laughs> no, so I usually, when I teach those traditional things, we talk about grandmother or something just to, you know. To get, to get over that initial resistance. <laughs> Not my mother. <laughs> no, but the point is there. And in fact, in the Dzogchen or in the Vajrayana, in the tantric teachings, it's not just to recognize all beings have been our parents, our loving parents, mates, children's mothers, through all so many births. We've been born so many times that we've all been enjoyed those relations together. But also to recognize all beings as Buddhas, as Dakas and Dakinis, as Devas and Devis. That doesn't mean that they don't each have their own quirks, but. You know, that's all part of the mandala. All the different deities, they have different jobs. They play different positions on the team, you know. Mm-hmm. Some are peaceful deities, some are wrathful deities, if you're familiar with tantric iconography. So, you see, in English, it means you recognize the light in everyone. Mm-hmm. How come it's so hard for Westerners to do the visualization, the deities and the 
because we're not used to it and we don't and because we think it's hard it's easier to, yes our little sister here asked how come it's so hard for westerners to do deity visualizations that's a part of tibetan buddhist practice in case you're not familiar with that kind of thing and I, I and i was just kind of brainstorming about this that it's um we're not first of all it's easier than you think as somebody says as the grandmother bodhisattva sylvia says whose spirit is always here much felt wonderful sylvia borstein good book by the way if you're not familiar with it it's easier than you think by sylvia borstein the jewish grandmother bodhisattva of marin county and second it seems hard because we don't understand what it means to visualize it doesn't just mean to try to see something with our eyes. It means to like imagine or conceive of, like we're visualizing ourselves right now as a certain way. We have a self-concept. That's visualization. I'm a man, or I'm a woman, or I'm big, or I'm small, or I'm old, or young, or beautiful, or fat, or thin, or, or American, or not American, or, you know, good, whatever good. Those are visualizations. Imagination, self-concept, story. So when you start to understand, it becomes easier. Also, the visualizations of Tibetan Buddhism are of very foreign forms. It's much easier to visualize, you know, like your mother or your child or your, you know, whoever you like. You know, famous icons, cultural icons, right? So it's not that hard for us to visualize. We're just not trained to visualize certain kind of things. We can easily envision other things. If I say the Golden Gate Bridge, don't you, can you easily visualize it? It's easy. So it's easier than you think, <laughs> like most things. The, the clear light or, or reality. Very good, thank you. It's just a visualization. <laughs> Reality is emptiness dressed up in drag. <laughs> so, it is what you make of it. It's very hard for me to see the question as it's too dark out there. Yes, a hand, thank you. Do you do any devotional Yes. Devotional practices. What would you like to hear about? I'm, you know, devotional practice is very helpful for cutting through discursivity, conceptual mind, for opening the heart, for warming up, for entering the temple, the sacred space of spiritual practice. You know, it's hard, isn't it, to drive home from work at top speed careening around corners and speeding and burning up all the fossil fuels extra and, you know, 
cutting off people to get off the freeway and run over the garbage can and pull into the driveway and <laughs> run through the door and kick the cat out of the way and go and jump on your meditation cushion <laughs> and just stop. It's difficult, isn't it? Because everything is connected. There's a kind of momentum. So after doing all those <laughs> unconscious things, kicking the cat and running over a few whatever garbage cans and when you sit down in your meditation space maybe you enter with you know you kind of slow down you bow maybe there's no one to bow to and no one to bow but you bow if you're a real Buddhist there's no one to bow to and no one bowing right you bow maybe bow three times or a hundred thousand times if you're in Tibetan Buddhism Keep you busy. Slow you down. Slow you down. Get your attention. Maybe one bow isn't enough to get your attention. 100,000 bows gets your attention. Then you're there. You've arrived, you know. You bow. You light some incense. You light a candle. Put some nice flowers or something. You sit down. You do a little, maybe prayer where you join your hands, you know, a little devotion. You chant something. You pray. You soften up. You enter the set. You create the sacred space. So it's very helpful. Then you can start to just be. Well, it's very hard to change from 70 miles an hour to just being, just by coming in the door. And more subtly, as we practice meditation or whatever spiritual discipline we're in, there are many sides to it. Like, on one hand, there's awareness you know, cold, clear, calm, equanimous, detached, desireless, meditation, awareness, mindfulness, etc. On the other hand, there's the warm, loving, nurturing, metta, loving kindness, compassion, empathy, practices, aren't there? That's for balance. That's for balance. So I find devotional practice very helpful. Chanting, praying, creative art also. There are some like contemplative arts that are very helpful. And we can even extend that into many forms of activity, not just art. In the specifically and I'll make this short, I want to hear from you. In the Dzogchen tradition and Mahamud tradition, devotion is considered very important to help us go beyond ourself. Not just the rarefied, non-dual, abstract philosophies of emptiness, but the heart-opening, heart-warming practices of love, empathy, and connectedness, absolutely crucial for living here in this world where we actually are. <coughs> Having our feet on the ground, even while we have our head up somewhere. <laughs> up in the sky, hopefully. Not somewhere else. Yes? Yes, in the back row? Yes. I was wondering, um, as far as true intrinsic 
It didn't come out. It's all part of it. The point of sleep includes rest, dreams. It's very purposeful. Not waiting for the punchline. Not waiting at all. Sleep has a point of rest. Dreams have a function. Your emotions also have their own intelligence and function, right? You pose suffering is bad and Buddha is good. But there's a saying in, in, Buddhism, in Japanese Buddhism, sun-faced Buddha, moon-faced Buddha. I'll translate that. Sunny day is Buddha. Rainy day is also Buddha. You want to know how so much of it can come out of this empty source? Because it's a source. How much air can come out of a bellows? The more bigger it is, the more empty it is, the more it can come out. How, it's like called empty womb, fertile womb of emptiness. All the Buddhas come out of that. All of us come out of that. There are infinite Buddhas and infinite beings. Are there any mathematicians here? What does that mean? There's infinite Buddhas and infinite beings. So it's not that there's a bunch of Buddhas here and there's a bunch of Buddhas there. It's all interpenetrating. We separate them. We discriminate. We're afraid of the shadows or ignoring, denying the shadows and only seeking the light. The shadows are also light. We wouldn't be able to appreciate the light if there were no shadow. We wouldn't be able to experience, appreciate the emptiness without forms. That's why it says in the Heart Sutra, forms are emptiness or are empty. (laughs) Emptiness takes form. Emptiness takes shape. Questions, please? Yes? That's right action, coming from emptiness, not coming from self-interest, greed, ego, separateness, and so on. Coming from emptiness, it's like reflections in a mirror. The mirror doesn't distort it or have its own self-interest in how it's reflected. So actions like reflections in a mirror. But it's not something you can figure out, emptiness. More important is, how can we live without ethics, morality, integrity, character, and so on? We're not saying nihilism is the way. Buddhism teaches the middle way that includes emptiness on one side and ethics, compassion, interconnectedness on the other side. Right? Yes. The middle way. That's why if you look at traditional teachings, first... There's Shila ethics, then there's Samadhi uh, meditation, then it comes wisdom. But more holistically, ethics is wisdom in action, not just leading to wisdom. Wisdom manifests as impeccable action, as love, as compassion. What else? How else would it manifest? the wisdom of non-separation, for example. That's emptiness. 
the separation between us is empty. That means there's no real separation. So out of that comes treating others as you yourself would treat yourself. That's why this path leads to that. It doesn't just say, treat others as you would be treated. It has a genius for showing you how to, act, to, be, to do it, to train yourself. We call it mind training, heart-mind training, transforming the attitude from selfishness to unconditional love and openness, which is wisdom in action. We have to enact these truths, not just seek them, bag them, and stuff them and hang them on our altar like trophies. You have to follow, he followed his own truth, truth, he didn't, um, you know, he didn't think the British opinion was as valid as uh, his, uh, his uh, people and his side of that, what did you call, contrary objectives. So we have to li- find our own truth and live our own truth and bring forth our own dharma, you know, quote, our own, in quotes. Bring forth our true dharma, not live somebody else's dharma, walking, dressing, and thinking the way they do. Yes? Um, going back to your statement about um, following the breath, when as Vipassana is following breath, my understanding is that we follow the breath and we follow our body um, sensations because they're changing. Yes, give space to space is inside too. Give space for the spaciousness. But also you could meditate outside more. Like in Dzogchen we practice sky gazing because it is supportive for experiencing that more so we can also then find the space in our constricted space. Even when our eyes closed we can do sky gazing once we understand that principle of spaciousness. And is it so that you're able to find spaciousness yes. no matter what In your mind, as it were. Yes, that's the idea. And not just spaciousness, which is the empty kind of side, but also the, the luminous or aware or the changing side, as you, you know, what's happening in the emptiness also. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's, a, that's a pitfall. Yes, that's important. If you can discern the difference between clarity and vague space, thatness, very helpful. But also, I, I would say um, <clears throat> there is an innate stability of mind or an innate samadhi that we don't have to just rely on concentration for. 
like presence. Presence of mind, you are present anyway. Even if you're distracted, whether the mind is moving or still, whether it's agitated or peaceful, the nature of mind is the same nature of mind. It's like the water in the ocean, waves or not waves. So there's a way to go deeper into that, as there is in Vipassana, where you move from sensations or breath to like chitta vipassana aware or choiceless awareness or just awareness of whatever comes up in the mind and you can go deeper than that into a sort of unconditioned or you know different words not just the impermanence but also the space between them you know it's like when things dissolve what's you know past the dissolution point what what is it what is aware then that's the direction I'm not putting down Vipassana, I'm just saying, just trying to shake up our kind of perspective, like what are we doing? What's, you know, let's shake it up a little, Let, let's drop everything and see what remains. That's an interesting experiment, because the real remains. What can be shaken or broken is conditioned, is, is put together, is not the real. <clears throat> I mean, I always hear everything is impermanent. That's mostly true, but that's not exactly what the Buddha said. Buddha said, anicca vata sankara. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent. There are some examples of not impermanent. Buddha said space is not impermanent. Nirvana is not impermanent. Um, in the Vajrayana we say, like, the nature of awareness, or it's like the, the Buddha nature is not impermanent. Because it's not a thing, it's not a sankara, it's not a compounded thing, it's not impermanent. So I'm just trying to explore this from various sides. I think it's all open to investigation, and that's really interesting. We can learn a lot that way. Also about why we're meditating, or what our motivation is and how we do it, defines very much how, what we will experience. Did I see a hand over there? Yes, sir? Right. And I started meditating many years ago. And I've been meditating ever since. And I still haven't, like maybe you can help me out with this, uh, figure how meditation lets me walk along the eightfold path. That's a good question, and that's, I was kind of bringing that up before. What is the most transformative agent or fact of enlightenment? Is it of the seven? Meditation is just one of the seven. And the Eightfold Path, which I hinted at before when I mentioned Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna, ethics, meditation, and wisdom, meditation is only one-third of that. Isn't that interesting? Those three are unpacked into the, as the Eightfold Path, Right? The Eightfold Path is divided into those three, Shila, ethics, meditation, and wisdom. So meditation is just one-eighth of that. Although we could say each of those is a cultivating awareness, like right speech is a way of, of being aware of our speech and whether it's helpful or harmful, whether it's true or false. It's a meditation. 
right action, discipline, even monastic vows is a meditation. It's a way of being aware of everything we do very <clears throat> meticulously, not just acting out our impulses totally out of control. So restraint. It's very difficult to be restrained or <clears throat> act or speak or think impeccably if we don't have enough awareness because our impulses and conditioning and emotions are a little out of control, right? As we all know. So meditation practice first develops <clears throat> more balance and concentration and, and focus and we can use that to go deeper and develop insight and wisdom and the wisdom of non-duality and the wisdom of impermanence, the wisdom of no self or no, no uh, governor, no creator. So we recognize karma and so on. Are you with me? That, I think, spills over very much into our life, doesn't it? If we recognize imperm everything's impermanent, doesn't that change what we invest in? When we see things as unreliable, doesn't that change how, what we rely on? We start to go for refuge and deeper refuges than that which is unreliable and tenuous and impermanent. <clears throat> when we have the wisdom of, non, of selflessness, don't we become more unselfish and more empathetic and connected and loving? So the meditation goes into the, develops us in those directions, which has to show up in life. If it doesn't show up in life, I don't think we've realized it in meditation. That's the test. Mm -hmm. I, I would agree with that. I think showing up in life and how you live your life is, is what we're after. Right. That's what I'm after. I, this sort of <coughs> spiritual thing that where you're kind of looking around and find emptiness and voids and things like that. Yeah. No. And that's spiritual. Only from the eyebrows up, we have to ground it in our bodies and hearts and lives and relationships and the workplace and so on. There's no other spirituality anyway. It's one of the dangers, I think, in Buddhism today. We always hear about mind and awareness, meditation, clarity, you know, enlightenment. It sounds always like from the eyebrows up. What about the rest? So I agree with you. But I think meditation is very sane. Brings a lot of sanity into my life, just to speak personally. Not to become a meditation addict, so you can't do anything else. And if you don't get your meditation fixed in the morning, you're like a wounded snake. <laughs> you know, if the kids are sick or somebody interrupts you or you know, there's a car accident in front of your door and you can't meditate. You become like incredibly, like, you know, get, you get the, what is it, the cold turkey. You know, you get shakes. <laughs> then you're like, you know, worse than the ordinary people. At least they can function. <laughs> so it's not about meditation per se. Meditation is a means to awakening. It's about awakening and awakefulness and how it shows up as wisdom and love and compassion and ethics and sanity. Meditation is not always what we think it is, is it? You know, like 
sometimes we say meditation is being with what is or seeing what is. So what does that have to do with crossing our legs? Meditation is seeing what is, being what is. Being with being what is, actually. It's extremely sane, relaxing, centering. It's sane. Rather than distorting what is, seeing everything through the different colored lenses of our own desires, but seeing things as they is, as they are, being that, being one with that, not manipulating it. That's sane. That's not voids and airy-fairy and, and irresponsible or copping out. That's sanity to me. So that's what I get out of meditation. Whatever form is meditating on the breath or chanting or anything, you know, bowing or ringing the gong. You know, ringing the gong is also, it's like bowing. It's a spiritual practice. It depends on what you bring to it. Any other questions before we perform the last rites here? <laughs> I'd like to hear from people I haven't heard from yet. You look like I heard from you. No? no? Okay. <laughs> oh, it wasn't you. Okay. There is only one person, he said. Right. Well, that's an example of dualism that we have to perhaps have to see through. Wanting what we want and not wanting what. It's just attachment, I want, and aversion, I don't want. There's a great practice in Tibetan Buddhism called Tonglen, giving and receiving, where you practice reversing that tendency to loosen up this attachment and aversion syndrome that's so exhausting. <laughs> where you pray to take on the suffering and to, to give away the merits and the health. It's a terrifying practice, actually. <laughs> That's the non-dual. Can just anybody do that practice? Sure. <laughs> anybody who's, can take, who's fearless and can take it on. Yes? Yes? Right. Well, let's face it, we all meditate to feel better. I mean, that's the facts. Let's not pretend. And gradually that might become deeper as to what that really means, feel better. Or what did you say, cope with what's difficult or deal with the pain? Good. Thanks for bringing this up. So, what do you bring in? How does that affect what you're screaming about or suffering from? That's great. Right. 
and it is there. So that's how we actually integrate like meditation with post-meditation or, or wisdom with life or something like that. We bring what we have learned or experienced spiritually or in meditation into action, into life, into difficult situations, into relations. That's the great challenge, how to integrate it in daily life. Sitting here with among friends is easy. What about in the difficult, you know, you, for you and I, the difficult situation is probably, you know, really not so difficult, but, you know, relatively difficult, you know, whatever, your boss or your marriage, but, you know, there are other more, perhaps more difficult situations in the world, you know, in Bosnia or wherever, the cancer wards, etc. So keep a perspective on that, too. Well, we have to do our best. That's really important. But that's the best, just the best we can do. We have to let go. Keep doing our best and also let go. Whatever happens, happens. We keep doing our best and also letting go because we're, we're not in control. Yes? Do you have any experience with children in meditation? Not much. What are you asking? How young you can start them or what? Sort of. My yeah. Right. Shame on her. You should teach her how not to do that. And then teach me too. While you're at it. No, I actually. No, I should say. Also, I have one of my best students, actually disciples, and my, is my goddaughter. She's nine years old, and she is unbelievable. But I don't think of it as like it's so important for her to meditate exactly. But she joins in with what she likes to join in on. And one thing, obviously, it's nice for children is chanting, singing, could be bowing or flowers or candles, incense, or giving alms, dana practice, community practice. Another thing, if you want to be more formal, very easy for children, is walking meditation. I don't just mean walking slowly like a zombie. <laughs> How about walking together in group or just with that on the line of a tennis court that takes all of their attention to get one foot after another on the line it's a nice game right. and if and when they master that you start doing it backwards one foot after another on the line that's what I call total meditation and these kind of things you can play games with children it's fun then they can join in with the adult meditation day while we're having a like family retreat they're not just hot you know locked up over in the play, what is it called, daycare. They can come in and do walk meditation with us, then they can go out and play and we can do our sitting. You know, it would be creative. But I don't think we want to force them into, maybe they need to develop their minds more at that stage. Yes, one more, then we're going to end. Um, I'd just like Thank to you. add a thought to that, and that is that depending on the child's inclination, music or painting, any of those things, if they have an inclination that way, is a meditation. And so that you have to find out what the child's inclinations are. And that can be a wonderful meditation for them, help their mind. Yes. And also for our own inner child, to find out what its inclinations are can be better than meditation for most of us. 
I just want to say that. As somebody who's meditated every day for 25 years, I'm a slow learner. <laughs> I'm just starting to realize this. The inner child knows how to be and play a little bit, and we have to trust that too. That's also Buddha nature, the Buddha within. So, good night, everybody. Thank you. It's been lovely. Actually, um, they asked me to make a few more announcements, <laughs> but this will be really quick. Next Monday night, Dr. Tin Tin is here leading the sitting. She's a wonderful Vietnamese, I think, correct me wrong, lady teacher of mindfulness. Burmese, whatever. She's a lady teacher of mindfulness from Asia. Speaks English. And if anybody wants to sponsor this 23-year-old female Tibetan refugee who just came from Nepal, please meet her and Sari at the back table. Sponsor Tibetan refugee. And Joanna Macy will be here February 26th. Thank you and good night. You know Eli Jackson there? Yeah. Who's that? Uh, he's a disciple of Punjaji, husband of Gandhiji, and has NLP and trains. Uh huh. And what you heard, was it positive or neutral? It was in one ear, not the other. I'm interested in Gandhiji, I like your teaching. Oh, okay, I think I already know. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.